Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Set your culinary sights higher and stay tuned because you just might learn something. This is your culinary culture and lifestyle show that celebrates food and wine, health, tech, travel, and all things delicious. It's a place for people who love to cook or love to eat. And I like to say, if you're both, then we should definitely be friends where every week I keep you updated on the food scene around the world. We take deep explorations of a broad range of culinary topics, and I hope that you are inspired. The delicious conversation starts right here and right now, and I welcome you to my kitchen. I hope that you'll become a friend and a fan, by the way, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you'll find my daily dish at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I am about to relaunch my website in all new scrumptious glory, and I'm loving it, and I hope you love it. So stay tuned to chefjamie.com for something all new coming up. Now, when it comes to this show, I love when new chefs sit down at the table to dish. I really do find it full of inspiration, and I hope you do as well. Coming up in just a bit, it's a success story rooted in talent and passion, and I can't wait for you to meet Chef Yia Vang. Born in a Thai refugee camp, Uh, settled in central Wisconsin and the next big name in food. You are going to be seeing a lot more of Chef Yia, and I can't wait for you to get to know him. So don't touch your dial. Coming up before the end of the hour, grab a glass because we are toasting. Yes, Paul Kay is back, the host of the very popular wine podcast called Wine Talks. And his 32 years of expert knowledge in the wonderful world of wine. We are finding out what 2023 holds for wine lovers. So we'll sip and savor. Don't go anywhere. But for those of you that have listened for so long, celebrating 20 years on national radio this year, this show, and I'm so very grateful for your listenership, or for those that might just be tuning in, I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, a different topic or subject every week that makes you the best cook you know. And this week, I'm all about caring for cast iron because I believe that the best cast iron skillets are a thing of tradition, passed down to generations, right? Memories of grandma's fried chicken or pineapple upside down cake, the pan that you inherited that was seasoned to perfection. I think those pans are to be treasured, maybe more than the basic skillet. And with a little bit of care, you can keep them for decades to come. Now, if you buy a new cast iron pan, It comes pre-seasoned, but caring for that historical pan that you treasure takes a little extra effort. And while I use my cast iron pans year round from baking a cake or skillet cookies or skillet brownies or fried chicken or maple glazed pork chops or skillet clams or even the best grilled cheese ever, 
Are you hungry yet? During these colder months right now in winter, I really love to cook in cast iron. It feels really hearty and rustic to me. And for brick chicken, it gets that inherent smokiness that comes from the pan. And I could be dreaming, but I truly think it does. Now, cast iron imparts history into your food, whether you're using your grandmother's pan or you're making new memories with your family. So why not welcome the start of the year by caring for your cast iron? Now is a really good time to assess your cast iron pans, see if they need some love, embark on a year of beautiful sears and braises and blackened everything. And so here goes. There are a lot of lighter weight cast iron pans on the market today, and you should know that I like them. But this conversation is about the treasured ones, the pan that you savor from your mom or your aunt or your nana or your bubby or your yaya, the pan that you plan to pass down to your child. And so here are my best tips to take care of that cast iron you treasure. Some cooks and diehards do not even dare let their pans near water so as to resist rust. But if you have a pan that needs a little love, you need to restore it. So seasoning is most important. Traditional cast iron skillets need seasoning to keep them healthy and usable for years to come. And if you find a little rust on a pan, one you have or one is passed down to you, I recommend that you season it right away. Seasoning is what it's all about. The act of coating the skillet with oil and baking it in a 350 degree oven for an hour. It is that easy. But first, you will need to clean it. And for best results, I say rinse the pan with very hot water and use a scouring brush, a mild abrasive uh, works as well. Um, That mild brush, coarse salt, something non-metal and a few drops of dishwashing soap, and you can get it clean with any crusty anything that needs to come off uh, or any of that rust that needs to be cleared away. Now, once you have it clean and dry, that's when you coat it with oil, bake it in the oven for an hour, turn off the oven and let it cool completely. I make sure that it is dry and cool before I put it away. And some great chefs will tell you that they line with a paper towel to resist any moisture during the process by which you store it. And you should have what is really a a perfect cast iron skillet for some time to come. Now, I get a lot of questions about cast iron. If you're buying a new cast iron skillet, a heavyweight treasured one, um, there is nothing more versatile than a 12-inch skillet. And there is one thing you should never attempt to do in cast iron cookware, and that is boil water. Now, while cast iron takes longer to heat up than other surfaces, it retains its heat better than anything else, and it diffuses the heat really evenly. And what I love is that you take it straight to the table with something to cover the handle, of course, and a trivet or something to protect the table underneath. And the cast iron remains hot long after you remove it from the stove or the oven. So seconds and thirds are always well received. And if you're wondering, 
There is, of course, a new and ongoing wave or trend of enameled cast iron. It's essentially a modernized version of the heavy-duty cast iron that's been around for centuries, but it has an enamel coating. And it is a protective coating that gives you a really clean surface on the cookware, um, and it does resist rust. Um, I think it's wonderful for slow cooking. It's almost as strong as its cast iron ancestors, but there is one big difference, and that is the cast iron shell and that handle, the enamel that's coated, um, is not so durable. Uh, The cast part is sturdy, um, but the coating, not so much. And so it is weak in comparison to what is considered a raw cast iron pan. The most significant advantage that enamel products have though, is that they don't need to be seasoned. So if you're starting out with a love for cast iron, that is a good place to start. Uh, it's nonstick, makes for a smoother cooking experience, but it's not your grandma's pan. Now, as for recipes for that cherished cast iron skillet, how about a double chocolate skillet brownie or skillet cornbread with chipotle butter? That's a good place to get cooking. And you'll find those recipes posted at chefjamie.com. All right, time for food news this week because this is some serious news you can use. Starting this Monday, Krispy Kreme is adding three new flavored donuts to its menu. And it's the flavor you know from your favorite airplane snack. Yes, they have partnered with Biscoff, also known as Cookie Butter, right? And they have made the first of its kind Cookie Butter Flavored Donut Collection available for a limited time at Krispy Kreme Nationwide. There is a Biscoff Iced Donut, a Biscoff Cookie Butter Cheesecake Donut, save one of those for me, please, and Biscoff Cookie Butter Cream Filled Donuts. So once you have one, email me, jamie at chefjamie.com and tell me how it is, preferably while you still have frosting on your face. Okay, don't touch your dial. This is a chef with true passion. And we are going to dish right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more fabulous food coming up next. Very happy new year to you. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, digging deeper in 2023 to find the most fascinating chefs and places and really good eats. The following is a success story rooted in talent and passion. I'd like you to meet Chef Yia Vang. One of seven siblings, Chef was born in a Thai refugee camp where he lived until his family resettled in central Wisconsin. A formally trained chef who started his career working as a humble dishwasher, he uses food to tell a story and believes that every dish has a narrative. You recently saw him compete on Netflix's Iron Chef Quest for an Iron Legend, 
and you know him as the host of Food Network's Stoked. He's also James Beard nominated and set to take over your television as the new host of the Outdoor Channel's Feral. He's opening a second restaurant as well, and we are basking in his success. It is with great delight that I welcome, for the first time, Chef Yia Vang to this show, to Dish. And I'm glad to have you. Happy New Year, Chef, and welcome. Hey, Happy New Year. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, of course. All right, first, for those that don't know you, or I want to get to know you better, can you please... Tell us about your cuisine and your best dishes. And I'm going to make sure I'm pronouncing it properly. You say Hmong cuisine, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay, good. So, yep. So, you know, we make Hmong food. Um, you know, I think the, the best way for me to explain Hmong food is to say that Hmong food isn't a type of food, but it's a philosophy of food. It's a way of thinking about food. Um, if you want to know our people, you have to know our food. Because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. So the way that we eat our food actually tells the story of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Mm. So our food kind of actually changes a little bit um, as, you know, as, like, each generation gets to put their own little part into it. So, like, for example, like the food that my parents and my grandparents ate in the hills of Laos, in the mountains of Laos, where they grew up and where they came from, is a little different than the food that, you know, the, the Hmong kids or the millennials eat here in America. And the reason why is because wherever we went, we gleaned from the land, we gleaned from the cultures around us to help fortify our cultural DNA, which is the food we eat. So mm. a lot of our food, you know, it's Southeast Asian, so yes. it has, you know, like our the aromatics we use are lemongrass, ginger, garlic, shallots, Thai chilies, mm. you know, sauces like oyster sauce, fish sauce, mm. you know, some MSG in there, um, you know. And, and so these are very basic, fundamental aromatics of our, uh, of the foods we make. But, you know, being here in the Midwest, you know, I'm in Minneapolis, so a lot of the, you know, a lot of the food we do up here is very reflective of the terroir of Minneapolis, of the, 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 you know, a lot of root vegetables that we do up here, you know, and we cook seasonally with whatever we can grow and however we can preserve and ferment different vegetables. I wonder how your parents have embraced your elevated cuisine, I would like to call it. It's steeped in tradition. And by the way, I cannot wait to get to Minneapolis. The photos scream on your website at Union Kitchen MN or UnionMongKitchen.com. And that's the taste I've been able to get as I salivate. I want to lick my computer screen. I have to tell you that beautiful whole fish and the fresh mint leaves everywhere and uh, that pickled component. Those are all the traditions that you grew up with. You've taken it to that next level, that next step. Yeah, well, Chef, I was very blessed to be able to work in some really great restaurants you yes, know, you uh, around town here no doubt. growing up and learning different, like, you know, it's really interesting. I tell people a lot of the restaurants I worked at were really, you know, French-based, so I learned a lot of different French techniques. And as I was learning those and I was watching my mom make, you know, some of her rice crepes, I kind of looked at her and I'm like, Mom, you know, that's a really French technique. And she was just like, yeah, sure. I mean, this is just, you know, what I learned. <laughs> right. So it's really interesting just, just to kind of see – how there is elements of French, you know, techniques that are uh, my mom even used, not knowing what French technique even means. So we, you know, we're we're totally influenced by you know a lot of like that globalization, you know, of of, of different countries and 
So even here, like I tell people that our food that we do here, you know, it has little remnants of all these different countries that are part of it, Mm. you know. But if you trace back, our people have lived in these countries or have been colonized by some of these countries, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a really great tapestry of stories of where we've come from. It really is, as is yours. You have brought Hmong cuisine to the forefront And you are leading the way to expose all of us to new flavors. And I love that. Um, You mentioned MSG. And I think it's still a controversial conversation. And I'd like to have it. I'd like to talk (laughs) MSG and heat. Because I I know you like it hot. Um, But talk about those two variables, if you would. And debunk the myth. Um, Because I'm all for MSG, by the way. It, It makes the food taste... So good. It is a craveable to me component that you cannot duplicate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, Dr. Harold McGee does the best of it. You know, he's you know food scientist. You know, guy from MIT. Yep. He, he he does all the like research on it, and he's debunked everything. So if anybody's interested, Dr. Uh, Harold McGee, just mm. go look at his stuff. I and, love and him. you know, and and then. I would just even say, too, is like that, that element where people always think that, oh, like monk food or even Southeast Asian food always has heat. You know, like being up here in Minnesota, you, you would understand, uh, you would get it if I told you that, you know, even black, you know, cracked pepper is considered hot, you know, or ketchup is considered spicy, right? And so, so we really, I really tell people that when, when people ask me, like, tell me more about monk food, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, what is monk food all about? And she's, the one word she said is balance. balance. She's like, monk food is about balance. That one flavor is never overpowering the other. Right. So if you eat something which is just spicy and it blows out your taste palate, like it's not, that's not what monk food is about. You know, uh, the reason why we use MSG, you know, and, and that MSG comes in fish sauce, soy sauce, even sometimes just MSG itself, is because we want to balance out all the flavors. You know, when you come to my mom's house and she's making you dinner, there's four elements that's going to be on that table. You have your rice, you have your protein, you have your vegetable, and then there's going to be a hot sauce. All four of those elements play together like a beautiful orchestra to make this symphony of flavors that blow up in your mouth. And anybody who knows anything about music is like, the bass drum is great, but if it's too much bass drum, it ruins the whole piece. But you still need that bass drum to give it a big depth, you know? And so... That's the same thing with monk food, and when, when it comes to spices or even the heat, and it comes with that savory, like, umami MSG, mm. every one of those elements has plays a role, and it has to play a role to balancing out the food that we make. We're going to take a quick pause as we travel through Chef Yia Vang's culinary journey as he welcomes us into his kitchen. And so that I can wipe my mouth, you're making me so hungry, Chef. When we come back, more on Hmong cuisine right after this.
back and we're dishing a very happy new year to you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Chef Yia Vang. He is the incredible success story at the helm of Union Mung Kitchen, Minneapolis, Minnesota, with a new kitchen on the way, an outdoor channel TV show just launching, and so much success yet to happen. Just for the record, I would die to be invited to your mother's house. I mean, I can't wait to visit your restaurant, but second best invitation, I have to say, might be at your mom's. No, I say, I tell people, if you want to experience like monk food and that whole encapsulating of what it is, you can't do that at our restaurant. Because, you know, a restaurant is logistically, you have to have a few elements that goes into a restaurant, you know, and how it works. It's a business, too, at the end of the day. We can try our best to emulate it. But I say is being invited into a monk household and mm. sitting down in the middle and the food is all brought in the middle and everybody gets a plate and you all dig in. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think that's the element, you know, that's missing from the restaurant mentality. And, and you know, because at the end of the day, a restaurant's a restaurant, right? Yes. But what we, we never claim to be, okay, this is the end all for monk food. We're saying this is a gateway. This is just a little crumb of what there is about our culture that you mm. want to, you want, you want to step in. And let a Hmong mom, a Hmong auntie, a Hmong grandma cook for you, and you as you sit there, because these flavors are so simple. We're not using some foam. We're not using some, <laughs> you know, big sous vide machine. No, not at all. They're just using literally heat, a pot, and then some water, and then a grill, and that's what they're doing. So there's that soul element to it. Yeah, of course. I, I would tell you the graze on your menu that serves two hungry people or four grazes or maybe just me has a taste of everything that you are known for. And that would be to me the perfect introduction to Hmong food. And then extra purple sticky rice, please. If we were to add one ingredient from Hmong cuisine to our kitchens, if, if I wanted to add flavor from your style, what one ingredient could I buy to start experimenting with? Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, I, would, uh, I, I struggle between these two ingredients, either, you know, either fish sauce or soy or sorry, fish sauce or oyster sauce. Okay. You know, depending on how you want to do it, I, I would say to, to first start, start with fish sauce, like just a dash of fish sauce in your chicken noodle soup. Huh. It changes the flavor. Yes, it does. You know, if you're making a, a egg salad, throw a, you know, throw a dash of, you know, fish sauce in there. What a cool you know, idea. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's like something where I'm like, you know, people are so afraid of it because they're like, oh, it's weird, it smells funny. But I tell people fish sauce is like that crazy uncle that nobody really wants at the holidays, but they do want a little entertainment and fun. So they have him come, but he only comes for a few hours, then you have to let him go back, you know? So that's the same thing with fish sauce. You don't want too much of it, but a no. little bit of Crazy Uncle during the holiday makes it, it super interesting. Yeah, it makes it super fun. I have always embraced fish sauce, like a drop of it here and there, because it has, as you spoke about, the steeped in French tradition and the French culture. My, my mother learned to make duxelle, chef, from a, mm-hmm. her good Jewish mother. Talk about steeping the, you know, the French favorites into every cuisine. Um, but a drop of fish sauce to me is the je ne sais quoi. It's the you can't put your finger on it, but man, is that good. I have to have more kind of ingredient. And I love that you introduced it because it is a beautiful way to embrace that very unique flavor that uh, permeates, uh, pun intended, 
so much yeah. of your cuisine and Southeast Asian cuisine, for sure. Yeah, we, we talk about, like, every time you make a different sauce at home, just put a dash of it in there. Even with drinks, like Bloody Marys, like, you know, Ooh. like, mix the Worcestershire and use the fish sauce. Oh, I like, love that idea. Yeah, we, we've turned the fish sauce oh, into that's this, um, in this caramel, huh. you know, when we make this, uh, like, this peanut butter brittle. We put fish sauce in it, and you think about it, caramel and salt works really well together, right? Yeah, of course, sea so salt, caramel, caramel, everything. Yeah. yeah, so peanut butter, caramel, brittle type thing. We put fish sauce in it, and then we crush it up into little flecks. And then what we do is then we do this, you know, barbecue rib with the tamarind barbecue sauce. <gasps> and then we take that peanut, butter, uh, that peanut butter caramel brittle, and we just, you know, put a little bit on top. Oh, and, and you've got this textural, texture. you've got a textural, yeah, c- contrast. Yep. Yep, yep. And oh. so, again, it's just one of those things where it's like if people stop being afraid of it and are saying, hey, you know, this is so weird, quote-unquote weird, I, I, it's one of those things, too, where I, I'm really starting to see it as a part of the pantry. Yes, you know, for sure. Because people are just like, you, you got your srirachas in there, and you have your soy sauce. You have, as you see, fish sauce is just as normal part of the you know pantry as, you know, salt and pepper and, Brilliant. you know, and ketchup and mustard. Yes, I'll tell you, your parents raised you with joy. To watch you on TV, to see you share your passion is joyful. And um, as you know, I have an almost three-year-old baby boy. Um, He's a Mm -hmm. big boy, as he's concerned. And I'll tell you, it is the most joyful thing I've ever known. So I can very much relate to what your parents speak about. But that joy has been... uh, That joy has been in... (laughs) imbued in you I believe because it is ever apparent and it is very much apparent in your new television show on the outdoor channel it's called feral and I would love for everyone to know about it yeah so it's congratulations by the way so much fun so much fun yeah so in the show what we do is we travel the country and we find I go out with a guide and we uh search we go searching seeking stalking, whatever, for uh, in either uh, a species that's either, you know, invasive or they're destructive to the ecosystem that they're in, or it's just like certain kinds of, you know, animals that most people won't put on their, you know, dinner table because they find it, quote, unquote, weird or strange. Sure. And so we go in and, you know, we go hunt them down, catch them, kill them, cook them, and, then we're, you know, I'm there with the guides, and the guides show me the way they cook them, and I show them the way I would do it, and it's a really fun show to be able to use Hmong flavors and, you know, aromatics to be cooking all these different animals, you know, uh, across the country. And uh, just and, and then also, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing, but not as, like, expert as these guys that go out with. So then you see me in very un- some uncomfortable positions, you know, like trying to catch a Burmese pythons or, you know, or trying to scuba dive, which I don't know how, and, you know, so stuff like that. And, the producers love it. They have a great laugh at my expense, I think. <laughs> tell, I tell us your best dish this season on Feral. Give us a sneak peek. I, you know, you know, it, it's really interesting, but I think everybody thinks that it's python or iguanas or wild boar. Honestly, I think one of my favorite dishes that we did was, uh, it's called mystery snails. So it's these big old fatty snails in northern Wisconsin in this lake. Wow. And they're invasive to this lake. And they, you know, in about 2000, 2001, they, it just invaded the lake and it was destroying the ecosystem in there. And so, we, I mean, they're, it's snails, so it's not super sexy to go catch them. It's not like, oh, my gosh, like a snake might bite me or whatever. 
we literally, you know, they're, they're in these little areas, little tree stump, falling tree stump underwater, and you just go pick them up. But they're everywhere, but they're so fun to cook, you know. Um, and, and how did you I prepare people, them? Yes, I did it two ways. One, I literally grilled it. I put the whole snail on the grill, and then when it was, when it cooked, it was finished, it kind of like a clam. It would just pop open. And then I made this kind of um, maple syrup non prick sauce, which you toss it in with, like, you know, lime juice, uh, fish sauce, maple syrup, you know, Thai chilies and garlic, you know, right, you know, hot and fresh right off the grill. You toss it in that, and then you have to go digging for the little, you know, the little jewels out there, the little piece of meat. Fabulous. And then the next one is I, I took all the meat out, you know, so it, it literally looks like clams. You know, it looks like little clam meat. Sure. And tossed it in this uh, red cabbage stir fry. And, again, <sighs> it's very, like, doesn't sound like super fun, you know, to go catch, which is it's one of those things that's super fun, too. Is if you have a bunch of kids, you just go make them go grab it, you know. And, and how's the uh, texture? But, uh, again, like clams. Like, yeah. I love clams and mussels. I do, know? too. So if I didn't tell you that this was snails, you would probably think this is clam. How cool. Wow. Love it. We are, I will tell you, uh, on behalf of all food lovers, we are delighted that your face, that your talent, that your passion is present in the food scene. And I can tell you, I very much admire what you're doing, that you're really doing it with sheer joy and that you're paving the way for others to see what an immigrant a restaurateur, a passionate chef, an explorer with no fear can do. And you're transforming palates with your flavors. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. He is Chef Yia Vang. He is the chef owner of Minneapolis's Union Mung Kitchen and the new restaurant set to open soon this year in 2023. And you can follow and find him at unionmungkitchen.com. It's U-N-I-O-N-H-M-O-N-G kitchen.com. And the same handle on social at unionmung, the H is silent, kitchen (laughs) at unionmungkitchen. He is Chef Yia Vang. What a pleasure, Chef. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a tremendous way to kick off the year with new flavors, new talent, And since the food world is ever evolving, please stay tuned because there's lots more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Cheers and welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are toasting once again today with Paul Callum Carrion, and I am so thirsty for it. You know Paul Kay, of course, the host of Wine Talks, the ever-popular wine podcast. He's also the second-generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, and his 32 years of expert knowledge in the wine world make him, I believe, an encyclopedia of wine. He has tasted upwards of 100,000 wines, so he might know a little something by now. I truly love his deeply rooted appreciation for the grape. And so I am so glad to welcome you back to the show, Paul. As always, Happy New Year to you. And uh, what are you sipping? Thank you, and Happy New Year to you. Always well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. And I'm, listen, we're gonna, we get to talk wine 
I'm in no matter what it is. I know. I know. And I know you love that. So, okay. Overall, like big picture, what does 2023 hold for wine? 22 was so tumultuous for the wine industry. There's, there were bankruptcies and there were mergers and there were, uh, uh, way too much inventory on the, on the marketplace. Um, that now going to 2023, we're hoping it stabilizes. One thing that's for sure that happened is that people were drinking better coming out of the post the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, during the pandemic, they were drinking better branded stuff, but now they're sort of elevated what they're drinking. So they're mm. spending a little more per bottle than they were in the past. It's kind of hurt the low end market. Um, the from a trending standpoint of what they're drinking. Yes. You know, it is like 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 we were talking about sparkling wine before we got on the air here. There was a huge shortage of champagne during the holidays. I remember. That's semi-predicted, but that's only because of demand. Right. And I agree. I think champagne and sparkling wine should be drunk all the time. It's very joyous. I have to agree with you. But sparkling wine sales will continue to rise as long as we've elevated our palates to the beauty of bubbles. And good bubbles for that. That's the key. Unfortunately, I taught my brother, my son-in-law, and my daughter about fine you know bubbles and now it's costing a fortune to keep them in there but <laughs> that's your own uh, fault my friend <laughs> exactly what's interesting about um, bubbles and the consumption of them is that the, like rosés many of the regions of the world that probably weren't known for bubbles are making bubbles hmm. and it's kind of cool because you start to get different terroir different characters so for instance i just had a gorgeous wine called alta vista from Argentina. Yes. 100% Chardonnay sparkler. So good. Wow. That's fascinating to me that winemakers are breaking into the bubbles word, world. Rather, It is a, uh, a very laborious process. It is. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I've had the privilege. Yeah, fermentation. I've had the privilege of being in Champagne, France. Uh, it is a labor yeah. of love. If you have the time, the, yes. the book Widow Clicquot, written by Tilar Maggio, about this incredible woman named uh, Widow Clicquot, actually, because she was a widow, but she's, of course, responsible for Vuv Clicquot. Yes. You know, she was a, uh, an innovator, uh-huh. an entrepreneur, uh-huh. uh, a shipping genius. Yes. This woman was something else. Yes. And she's what created what now would be probably the largest brand in, in the world. Yes. And I've read it. It is an extraordinary story. But I happen to love, yeah, fabulous. I love the idea that sparkling wine sales are continuing to grow. I love that your wine world continues to grow. I read that there might be an uptick in Pinot Noir in 2023. I'm not sure that's an uptick. I think we have a a long love of Pinot. We do in my house. I haven't to be a Pinot Noir fanatic, as you know. Um, but are you seeing more on the sales side? What's happening in the industry is my tasting day, which is Tuesday, is sort of a, a thermometer of what's going on, a barometer of what's happening in the industry. So when, when Pinot Noir is popular, I see a lot of Pinot. Yes. When Australian wines are popular, I see a lot of Australian wines. Sure. I am seeing more Pinot Noir through for tasting. And mm. What's kind of cool about them is the prices are stabilizing. You know, post-sideways um, movie, they were literally untouchable price-wise. Sure. The demand went so high. And now we're getting Sonoma Coast Pinot Noirs. We're getting wines from Russian River that are very reasonable. And I hmm. even had a reasonable price entry-level Burgundy that was really good. Really? It was really good. Oh. And I'm looking at the label going, really? 
because I never see those. Yeah. It's really good. Now you you piqued my interest, no doubt. Wine of the Month Club is the oldest sustained mail-order wine club in the U.S., founded in 1972 by Paul Callum Carrion Sr., succeeded in ownership by his son, Paul Kay, whom you just heard. He tastes over 400 wines from around the world tough job a year and brings his findings to you is it no 400 wines how often do you drink 400 wines a month a month forgive me i stand corrected 400 wines every tuesday wines a month okay go get back to work would you <laughs> you can learn cheers. cheers to you thank you my friend learn more at wineofthemonthclub.com and please listen to his podcast it is the number one wine podcast anywhere and you don't want to miss it it is called wine talks and you can hear it wherever you stream and so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation and i certainly hope that it pleased your palate Don't go yet. Let me leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for the week. For those of you that know me well, you know that I love my air fryer. My air fryer, my air fryer oven, my personal air fryer, my air fryer everything. Yes, I am an appliance girl. And I think there are so many things that great cooks don't know about their air fryer. Like, did you know that most frozen fish can go straight from the freezer to your air fryer? Zero thawing required. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, oh my, a professional chef in my radio is telling me to take frozen fish and air fry it. Oh yes, I am. Because it is just so good. And unless you are a fisherman or fisherwoman and you are catching it yourself. Much of the best fish today is flash frozen on the boat and the quality is there and the flavor is there. And why thaw it if you could just cook it? You preheat your air fryer to 400 degrees. You make a very simple egg wash. You season some panko and you dip the frozen fillets of fish into that egg mixture, dredge it in the seasoned panko and air fry in a single layer. The secret is a good spray of olive oil. It really is so good. So I'm posting the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I hope you'll become a fan and a friend. And I hope that you'll sit down at the table with me next weekend. Meet me here for more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 